tienes permiso para negociar con Venezuela, pero no le puedes pagar en dólares, le tienes que pagar con alimentos o con productos. Eso es un modelo colonial. Así. Venezuela denuncia el modelo colonial que intentan imponer desde los FAP, desde Washington, imponiéndole a países soberanos de América Latina, del Caribe y del mundo, un modelo inaceptable. Sanctions, also known as unilateral coercive measures, should primarily be understood as a tool of neocolonialism. Imperialism is driven by structural demands inherent to the capitalist mode of production. Imperialist countries like the U.S. pursue neocolonial policies in order to secure the necessary resources required for capital accumulation in advanced capitalist countries, employing great violence if necessary to guarantee access to resources that they consider indispensable. Unilateral coercive measures are aimed at inflicting collective punishment on a sovereign state. In the case of Venezuela, they are driven by an effort to secure access to the country's vast oil wealth, to once again bring Venezuela under the heel of U.S. dominance. Washington also wants to punish the Bolivarian Revolution for not bowing to its hegemony. This is why U.S. presidents, regardless of political affiliation, have emphatically pursued regime change. The U.S. Treasury Department measures targeting Venezuela's oil sector are designed to starve the country of foreign income. Despite U.S. propaganda claims that the sanctions are meant to punish the Maduro regime, sanctions hurt the population. It's a sort of schoolyard logic, where the U.S. has decided that since it cannot control the resources, Venezuelans should not be able to benefit from them either. However, given the pressing need to secure other sources of energy following the imposition of sanctions on Russia due to the conflict in Ukraine, it should come as no surprise that the Biden administration found itself suddenly interested in direct talks with the Maduro government. Concretely, this has resulted in sanctions waivers from the U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control for expanded operations for hand-picked energy firms with operations in Venezuela. But we should be explicitly clear. These do not constitute sanctions relief. These waivers prohibit firms from engaging in cash transactions. Instead, payments to Caracas in exchange for the extraction of Venezuela's natural resources are only to be used to cancel outstanding debt or eventually the delivery of food and other goods. As we heard from President Maduro at the beginning of this program, that is colonialism. The name says it all. The U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control? What business does the U.S. have controlling foreign assets? Simply put, the imposition of U.S. sanctions is a manifestation of extraterritorial policies on resources belonging to another sovereign state for geopolitical ends. In other words, neocolonialism. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're looking at the efforts to resist the U.S. neocolonial practice of sanctions. What is the Maduro government doing in the face of this challenge? Can we say that there's an economic recovery in Venezuela despite the imposition of unilateral coercive measures? And how are solidarity activists inside the belly of the beast organizing to end U.S. sanctions?
it is important to highlight the violence that underpins this sanctioned strategy. The cruelty is the point. The logic of this collective punishment is to inflict such widespread suffering that the population themselves grow weary and topple the democratically elected government. This is a view sustained by Venezuelan Vice President Delcy Rodriguez, who during a presentation to the International Criminal Court said, quote, They do not care about the suffering they have caused the Venezuelan people. They have a political objective, to oust a government that is not aligned with their interests, that is not subservient to its mandates, its orders, end quote. Venezuela, of course, is unique because not only is the government of Venezuela sanctioned, but of course, the principal energy company, PDVSA and others, are also sanctioned. Venezuela's sanctions are amongst the most complex of any sanctions um, regime the United States has. There are seven different executive orders, that some, some going back to 2015, three separate determinations made pursuant to one of these executive orders, three separate statutes, and uniquely, more than three dozen general licenses, exemptions to these sanctions, which makes implementation, application, and enforcement really quite challenging. The cruel U.S. sanctions policy towards Venezuela was accelerated under Donald Trump, who implemented a maximum pressure campaign to force President Maduro out by any means necessary. The country had its frozen assets worth over 8 billion U.S., including PDVSA's U.S. subsidiary, Citgo, frozen and out of reach of the democratically elected government. A drop in revenue from oil estimated at $3 billion a year. A severe decline in the country's ability to import food and medicine that has led to millions suffering from malnourishment and 300,000 patients with chronic diseases unable to access medicine critical for their survival and a massive deterioration of public services and infrastructure due to the state's inability to secure parts or financing for maintenance. To talk about the impact of unilateral coercive measures on Venezuela and efforts by activists in the U.S. to resist sanctions policy, we will speak with Michelle Elner, a Latin America campaign coordinator at Code Pink. But first, a conversation with Venezuela analysis Ricardo Vaz about the state of Venezuela's economy today and what the Venezuelan government can do to address inequality in the country. Hi, Ricardo. Welcome to the program. It's great to have you as usual. I want to start with something that perhaps listeners outside of Venezuela might not know about. Inside the country, there's this phrase that's been floating around, and some of our columnists have even made mention of it. The phrase is, Venezuela se arregló, or Venezuela is fixed. But it seems like not everybody is saying this earnestly. What's the story behind this phrase? Where did it come from? And is it true? Is Venezuela fixed? Hi, so Jose Luis, it's great to be back. Uh, it's been a while since I was on the podcast. So uh, beginning by, by your final question, uh, the short answer is no. I mean, I, we cannot say Venezuela is fixed in any meaningful sense of the word. But it's actually a, quite a, a common sentence that you hear, especially on social media. And one of our columnists, Renaldi Turrisa, actually did some archaeology to find out where it began. And it, it's actually from abroad. So <clears throat> it had to do with the constant uh, instrumentalization and demonization of Venezuela in other countries where there were significant migrant populations like uh, Colombia, Chile, and Ecuador. So depending on whether Venezuela was in or out of the news, depending on electoral con conjunctures in those countries, people would say, oh, I mean, if, if people are not talking about Venezuela anymore, it's because Venezuela is fixed. But then 
it started to become more commonly used here in Venezuela. And it's one of those uh, chicken and egg social media things that we don't know uh, who started. But I think it started being used uh, kind of ironically. So people would say, would look at something that was broken uh, or perhaps a power outage and would ironically tweet, uh, Venezuela is fixed, Venezuela se arregló. And then in response, there were uh, pro-government social media activists, I mean, this kind of more influential people on, on social media who try to fight back, but not always, I mean, at least in my opinion, uh, in, the, in the best way. So they would look at examples that show uh, improvement in the country and, and fight back against those who, I mean, in, in their sense, they, in some sense, they are right about those who are constantly trying to uh, demonize the country and, and exaggerate the, the situation. So they would, but in, in, I think they, they chose the wrong examples in terms of what we would consider as the situation being fixed. So they would look, for example, as at uh, you know high-profile concerts or sports events, things that might seem normal uh, in in first-world countries, but are not really the measure of you know the situation improving on the ground for for everyone and, and especially for the poorer sectors i'm sure we'll get more into this i just i was just remembering there was a quote from chavez in his final speech uh, the the famous uh, golpe de timon strike at the helm where he was directly quoting mesaros i'm going to paraphrase here and he was saying that the measure of uh, progress in a socialist path in a socialist revolution is how much more democratic the economy is becoming. So if that's how we are sick, and, and it's clearly not at this time, then Venezuela is not fixed. But that being said, there are clearly improvements. I mean, the situation for us on the ground here is clearly much better now than it was, say, I don't know, in 2019. Uh, I mean, you can look at public services like electricity or water or cooking gas, and the service has more or less stabilized. I mean, power outages are very uncommon. I mean, certainly in Caracas, they are very uncommon, but also in other places, we, we get to travel sometimes and we have contacts elsewhere. They, they are becoming much less frequent, even in the worst areas like, like Zulia in the, in the far west. Uh, power outages can happen like once a week. So uh, it is a tribute to the fact that the economic situation has improved and the government has been able to at least stabilize some of these key aspects to, to daily survival that the situation has indeed gotten a bit better in, in, in recent months, in, in recent years, let's say, since the beginning of 2021. But of course, there's still, there's still a lot to be done. There's still a lot to improve. There's still a lot to recover. And I'm sure we'll discuss this in, in more detail. Longtime listeners of the podcast will know that you're the one responsible for those blistering Twitter threads that sometimes get posted. And you recently did another one of those, breaking down a recent piece from Bloomberg, which was full of the usual distortions. And I want to invite our listeners to follow our Twitter page because it really is a, a great look at some of the very poor mainstream coverage. But anyway, in that piece that you were looking at most recently, there was a line that really jumped out at me. And it said that Maduro, quote, orchestrated a surprising though fragile economic rebound with the help of sanctions relief from the Biden administration, end quote. U.S. sanctions have imposed untold suffering on the Venezuelan people. And now these State Department stenographers want to convince us that this modest recovery is thanks to Biden? Honestly, the first thing that came to mind was that Malcolm X quote, which goes, 
if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. If you pull it out all the way, that's not progress. The progress is healing the wound that the blow made. So on the topic of sanctions, how do sanctions curtail Venezuela's room to maneuver in the economic realm? Yeah, that's a wonderful quote from Malcolm. I mean, it's, it's no wonder there's such a concerted effort to silence Malcolm in, in the corporate media. But indeed, I mean, th this Bloomberg piece that you were mentioning kind of drove me insane because it had this headline about the two presidents. And I mean, there were never two presidents. There are certainly no two presidents in Venezuela right now. But the quote that you were mentioning, it's uh, demonstrably false because if we're talking about uh, sanctions relief, and I'm going to put relief quote unquote, uh, the, the one measure happened in, in November, which was the Chevron, Chevron license. I'll, I'll talk about it in, in a second. But Venezuela had already experienced five, semester, five straight semesters of double-digit growth, so it's completely unrelated to anything that the Biden administration has done. And as for the first part of the sentence, that Maduro orchestrated the, the recovery, that's again a disingenuous um, uh, way of seeing it from the corporate media and a very interested way of doing it which is to look at this kind of liberalizing measures in the economy, you know, allowing the dollar to circulate, uh, loosening some of the regulations on, on exchange controls and, and price controls, uh, lifting some import tax and so on, a kind of a, a liberal economic package to, to try and stimulate the, the economy. And there, the corporate press is kind of seizing on it and saying, oh, look, I mean, the, the, soon, the sooner had they moved towards a more capitalist outlook, the, the better it would have turned out. But it's actually, it's actually false. I mean, the, the economic recovery is owed essentially to two factors, and they both have to do with oil, which remains, I mean, for better or worse, the engine of the Venezuelan economy. So the Venezuelan oil production under these crushing sanctions from the, the U.S. Treasury Department crashed to all-time uh, low levels of output in the second half of 2020. So these were around 350,000 barrels a day. And then over the next 12 months, this production doubled, which was a very uh, impressive recovery from the, the state oil company, PDVSA. So they doubled to around 700,000 barrels a day, and they have kind of stagnated uh, there since then, which kind of tells us that there's a, a very hard ceiling that's being imposed by this uh, US blockade, especially on the oil sector. But then there was another uh, favorable circumstance in very unfortunate circumstances, we should say, which was the, the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine. So this actually drove prices, drove oil prices very high, and this benefited the, the Venezuelan economy. But, you know, to, to your question, uh, how, how do sanctions limit the room to maneuver? I mean, they are kind of a straitjacket on, on the Venezuelan economy. I was just talking about the, the oil sector. Actually, th there's a bit of, of a deja vu because the first podcast episode we did uh, about a year and a half ago was precisely on, on sanctions, and now we're going back to it. Some things have changed, but in, in essence, the sanctions are still there. And we had just published two uh, very detailed infographics on, on the matter, and we're going to publish ac uh, updated versions of, of those, so people should, should check them out. So essentially, sanctions, the way they are constructed, uh, limit all sectors of the Venezuelan economy, and particularly oil. That's why uh, production hasn't really gone up from the 700,000 barrels a day, and it kind of limits everything across the chain. I mean, uh, it's very hard to get spare parts, so whenever there's an, an accident or a pipeline has some, some explosion, 
it drives production back. And it's a, it, has, it has been an uphill struggle to, to recover because uh, Venezuela is kind of barred from working with, with foreign partners. So it has to look for these intermediaries. It cannot really get significant investment. And it's also very disingenuous to kind of portray this Chevron license as any meaningful sanctions relief because in, their, in the own words of U.S. officials, this, this license that allows Chevron to expand its uh, drilling and uh, exporting operations in its joint ventures in Venezuela, uh, the license is meant to stop Venezuela from getting any benefits from any uh, improved production from Chevron. Of course, I mean, Venezuela will get something because it's still the majority shareholders in these projects. But the, the U.S. Treasury Department has made a point of, you know, in a way conceding to these corporations that had been lobbying for a long time to kind of restart their operations in Venezuela, but trying to put as many obstacles for Venezuela to get any benefits from it in the process. And so in, in that sense, I think it's uh, way too premature and, and even uh, inaccurate to say that there has been sanctions relief when uh, the main measures, I mean, beginning with the, the oil embargo against the Venezuelan exports, I mean, these measures are still in place and, and we, we haven't even mentioned the, the assets that are frozen abroad, which are nowhere near close to being returned. I mean, there's the nearly $2 billion worth of gold that's been frozen in the United Kingdom for a few years. Now there's no longer even a quote-unquote interim government, but the UK continues to refuse to return it. There's also the case of Citgo which is a U.S. US based refiner owned by Venezuela that's worth some $8 billion. Citgo is facing a number of threats from creditors, you know, in, in a number of very shady processes where no longer, uh, not only do you have this uh, kind of international arbitration courts that rule in favor of corporations, but then you had this uh, Guaido administration, uh, quote unquote, step in and really mess up uh, I would say, <laughs> intentionally, the, the defense of Venezuela's interests. So there's a very good chance that Citgo will be lost in the coming months. So, so just to summarize, so I don't get too dispersed, uh, sanctions remain the, the one determining factor in all matters related to the Venezuelan economy. It's still the, the main priority for, for the struggle and for the solidarity struggle in particular to kind of uh, con uh, make the U.S. public conscious of the, the damage and the death that has caused. I mean, we're talking about over 100,000 deaths being conservative. And so as long as these sanctions are in place, it's going to be a very uphill battle to sustain it and continue the economic recovery that I was mentioning in the first question. Yeah, and we really can't emphasize it enough. The demand must be the lifting of these illegal, we should stress, unilateral coercive measures. And our next guest is going to get into more detail about some of the work that's happening to precisely achieve that. But I want to change now onto the issue of the reality for the Venezuelan working class and campesinos, the poorest, the most marginalized of Venezuela, the backbone of Chavismo. They're the ones who have largely borne the brunt of the economic war that's been waged on Venezuela. It's they who've had to endure the shortages, the impacts of hyperinflation, the lack of economic opportunities. But can we say that these segments of Venezuelan society, are they benefiting from the president recovery? If we know that liberal economic orthodoxy, which we mentioned that is taking place in certain segments of the Venezuelan economy, leads to inequality, what steps could the Venezuelan government implement? 
to begin to address it before it gets out of control. Indeed, I mean, that's the, the current challenge. Uh, to answer your first question, I would say that all segments of the Venezuelan population have benefited to some extent from the, the recent economic recovery. I mean, even the poorest sectors have seen improvements, not just in their income, but also the public services that I, that I was mentioning. Also, for example, the, food, the, the subsidized food boxes, the clap boxes have become more regular and bringing more food again. So uh, it's fair to say that everyone has seen their uh, living standards improve from, I don't know, the, the beginning of, of the pandemic until, until today or the beginning of 2019. That being said, it's also very, very clear and basically everyone has admitted it from, from the government to the opposition to commentators on both sides. This recovery has been very, very unequal. And it's unequal um, almost inevitably because I was mentioning that the, the root causes of the, the recovery are not mysterious. I mean, they are mostly to do with the oil sector and the oil prices in, in, in the international markets. But there were these liberalizing measures in the economy. And what they have done, uh, I mean, they have, to a certain extent, dynamized the, the, the internal market. But they have, in a way, increased the advantages that the Venezuelan bourgeoisie already had when it, when it came to accessing this rent. So there's this eternal dream in the Venezuelan economy that uh, the bourgeoisie at some point will become uh, productive. It will no longer become, it will no longer uh, be just parasitic in the sense that it's just looking for getting access to the oil rent and doing this, uh, you know, get rich quick businesses where they just import stuff and, and, and sell it for a profit. And with this liberalizing measure that have taken place uh, recently, there was again this hope that the bourgeoisie was going to invest, maybe that they were even going to bring back uh, some of the hundreds of billions that have been extracted from, from the country in, in capital flight in the past two decades. But that has not happened, and it was quite predict predictable that it wasn't going to happen. I mean, a, a tiger cannot change its stripes. It's not going to, the Venezuelan businessmen are not going to change to a less lucrative uh, business activity out of their own volition. So we have seen that the Venezuela Central Bank remains the one source of foreign currency in the economy. And then you have all these monopolistic sectors, you know, playing with the, the exchange rate and, you know, driving it up and up and, and demanding more and more dollars from the central bank. And, and all, all, all this does is just increase the, the percentage of profit that goes to capital and decreasing the one that goes to labor. So the Venezuelan government has recognized, I mean, Maduro in his uh, speech, in his yearly speech to the National Assembly, said that the goal is to consolidate economic growth with equality. So they are very much aware that this is a problem to address. I mean, just in, in recent weeks, we have seen the public sector go out on the streets very strongly and very constantly demanding higher wages. I mean, the devaluation hits wages. And right now, the minimum wage is again around $6 after having been raised to around 30 about a year ago. And, and the government is in a bit of a political, in a bit of a quagmire in terms of its economic policy. It doesn't really know where to move. It has, it has tried to, to buy time before implementing this uh, inevitable, I would say, wage increase by giving bonuses that allow uh, the people to kind of survive in, in the meantime. And, and it says it wants to do something that's sustainable in the long run, which is, of, of course, 
what we all want. But through this process of liberalization that we were discussing, we can say that the state has kind of surrendered some of its tools uh, in terms of, you know, getting control of, of the economy. So now does, is the government willing to take a step uh, back, you know, in the opposite direction of trying to enforce some kind of price controls and trying to limit the profits of, of the bourgeoisie? I mean, there, there's, there's always this uh, kind of nervous, nervousness from the most uh, liberal orthodox uh, commentators from, from the government side saying that, you know, it, it will generate again an inflation, hyperinflation spiral, and the government is looking for stability in a way that will attract foreign investment. So trying to continue this recovery and then at some point, hopefully find itself in, in better conditions to, re to redistribute wealth. I mean, that's, that's more or less how I see the plan. I mean, I think I, I understand uh, the thinking, but I'm not sure it's, uh, it's going to be successful in, in the long run. I mean, uh, you cannot have it both ways. I mean, you cannot have an economy that in, on one hand prioritizes the poorest and most vulnerable and not just in the, in the kind of welfare state scenario. I mean, I, I mean in really in the sense of, of empowering, empowering them and, and changing the productive matrix in, in the economy. And at the same time, ensure that uh, the economy remains lucrative for, for the bourgeoisie. I mean, uh, this is a very tough equilibrium that the government is trying to navigate. I'm not sure it's going to be sustainable in the long run. And I don't really want to, to you know, fight one orthodoxy with a different one, but in the end, it really goes down to the, the ownership of the means of production. So Chavez made a very strong emphasis that social property needed to become hegemonic uh, in the economy. And of course, right now, under these deadly sanctions, uh, there has been a step back. I mean, there are very uh, constant analogies to, to the NAP in, in the Soviet Union in, in the early 20s. And, and of course, we can understand that some concessions are, are needed. But I think there's a need to uh, go back, look at the horizon. I mean, if, if, if there is a transition towards socialism, how should it look like? Who are actually the, the sectors that should play a, a prominent, a protagonistic role in the economy and then, you know, act accordingly. But, you know, as I, as I was saying in, in the previous question, sanctions remain a straitjacket, a straight straight so the government is not taking these decisions in, in a vacuum. It has very little room to maneuver, but I think sooner or later it's going to have to face some very tough choices. And I want to close with a positive note. You know, as often happens in these cases, it really much boils down to the movement of the working class. Are they going to take up that challenge and start to act? And I think we're already starting to see it. We're already seeing the Venezuelan working class mobilize anew. And I find that really encouraging. That's the way that these contradictions will be resolved. Well, Ricardo, we've reached the end of our segment. Thanks so much again. That's an excellent analysis and look forward to having you on the program again soon. Jose Luis, thanks so much. The changes that we have made on Venezuela are ones that have gone from a poorly devised regime change strategy through maximum pressure. That was flawed in its design. The implementation showed that it didn't work and we inherited it. And what we started to do was do two things. Number one is no conditionality on humanitarian measures. And then the other one's very clear political conditionality on the alleviation of sanctions, meaning 
we would use sanction alleviation of sanctions only on the basis of of outcomes that lead to negotiation. In our next segment, we speak with Michelle Elner, a Latin America campaign coordinator at Code Pink. Hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for joining us on today's program. I'll get started with a question about U.S. sanctions. In a recent interview, Biden's point man on Latin America, the National Security Advisor Juan Gonzalez, tried to make the case that the Democratic administration policy toward Venezuela did indeed represent a break with Trump's quote-unquote maximum pressure strategy. Do you agree? Or are Trump's policies still largely intact under this Democratic administration? Well, thank you so much, uh, first of all, for inviting me to your show. Um, and yeah, to answer your question, um, I think this is a half truth. So yeah, maybe the threat of a military intervention, uh, you know, Trump uh, frequently said that the military option was always on the table. Um, Mike Pompeo, when he was um, Secretary of State in Walton, they were promoting a military intervention and inciting the Venezuelan military to overthrow Maduro. And that's not happening so explicitly. So in that sense, um, yeah, there, there may be a change. But in terms of the sanctions, um, we see that the sanctions are largely in place. And even people on the Hill are calling it the Trump-Biden sanctions. Um, the few exceptions that we, we have, you know, that has been, have been made with regards to, I don't know, Chevron or some European companies, uh, with regards to the development of this, uh, you know, Dragon uh, gas field for Trinidad and Venezuelan waters. These companies are being prohibited from paying cash, any cash, to the Venezuelan government. Uh, the U.S. is conditioning the form of payments and trade between these countries. And this, of course, is, is, has a, a big impact on the Venezuelan economy. So, yeah, regime change is not being pushed. Um, as explicitly as it was under Trump, uh, but they're not definitely off the table either. Um, and there is something that is also uh, nefarious is that, that, that they're using um, the sanctions in order to, um, to pressure the government uh, to do things that favor the interests of the private sector in the U.S. and even, even multinational corporate corporations. Uh, and that's highly immoral that these uh, these sanctions are being used to promote economic interests. So, like I said, it's a half truth, uh, and the very little changes that have occurred, in part at least, um, it's because of the geopolitical and economic interests of the United States in the context of the war in Ukraine. So, if there is, like, if there has been like a very slightly improvement in the policy of Washington. It's not because, I don't know, uh, altruistic reasons or because Washington is concerned about the well-being of the Venezuelan people, what, you know, like everything that they have been through. It's because of our geopolitical and economic issues. And there's also the migration issue. You know that lately uh, there has been a little bit more reporting on how sanctions are making people migrate. Uh, even some U.S. officials are saying that lifting the sanctions of Venezuela could help stabilize the nation and eventually, you know, stretch the flow of Venezuelans leaving. Of course, not admitting, admitting that the sanctions are the main reason why Venezuelans are migrating in the first place. 
So anyways, uh, these, uh, you know, slight changes may be motivated in part by these factors. So present economic indicators inside Venezuela, I think, show an undeniable recovery. In many ways, things are indeed improving, even though the Venezuelan economy very much remains in severe difficulties. But we've seen some sectors of the Venezuelan opposition, as well as U.S. foreign policy hardliner, argue that this slight recovery is proof that the economic crisis in the country was due to mismanagement or too much regulation by the Venezuelan government, that sort of neoliberal orthodoxy. But from the point of solidarity movements, like the ones you're involved with, how do you make sure that U.S. sanctions are not minimized or disregarded altogether? You mentioned just now that they do mention it, but they do try to downplay it. How do we make sure that people understand, especially within the United States and Canada and Western Europe, that the sanctions do play a very large role? Yeah, I think that, you know, that that's those statements uh, from uh, Washington and the opposition, um, you know, they're, they're deceptive. They're, there's no logic in that argument. And it's because, you know, there's, there's so much evidence that the motive behind the sanctions were to ca cause pain and suffering and um, that this would accelerate, you know, the process of toppling the Maduro government. Even Mike Pompeo says this in his, in his book very explicitly. And uh, I don't know, even uh, former U.S. ambassador to Venezuela, v William Brownfield, we know that he said that, that the best solution was to accelerate the collapse. Um, of the Venezuelan revolution, even if that implied, uh, you know, a greater burden on human suffering. Um, we know that the State Department uh, published um, and then deleted uh, a fact sheet boasting that it, it had caused significantly, uh, significant, you know, uh, cut in oil production uh, and that, that the financial sanctions that they had imposed on the Venezuelan government had forced them to be in default. So, I mean, I could go on and on uh, and, you know, by stra strangling the, the state run oil sector and by freezing the government's assets, the U.S. knew or knows that the government loses its capability to obtain, you know, the, the, the foreign currency that they need to, to import food and medicine. Uh, so the intention is or was to, uh, uh, to attack and, you know, and, and dislocate the Venezuelan economy and social model, as Brownfield said, seeking its collapse in order to achieve regime change. So this statement is illogical. If there is a recovery in Venezuela, uh, I think, first of all, it's because other countries outside the U.S. Uh, are changing their positions with regards to Venezuela. So uh, there is like a slight improvement in terms of economic possibilities with regards to foreign trade. The fact that Washington's not, you know, like talking about regime change so explicitly and trying to encourage the military to overthrow the government may be per perceived as, you know, like a less risky environment for foreign investors. Uh, so the private sector is beginning to invest in Venezuela, but it's also because Venezuela have created a, a resistance model. It, they, it has been like a learning, it has been, a, a, you know, a learning experience for them, an experience of ad, resistance and adaptation to the situation. 
that's the explanation. It has nothing to do with the argument that those sanctions don't affect the Venezuelan people. You know, last year I I went to Venezuela and I went with this idea to, you know, I wanted to do some in, to make uh, to do some interviews and expose how U.S. sanctions were harming Venezuelans. And the first thing that I noticed was that, you know, people in Venezuela, they were talking about sanctions in past tense. Like, yeah, when the sanctions, I remember when the sanctions, uh, we didn't find, I don't know, arena pan to, or, you know, the flour to make the, the arepas. So we had to improvise, or we didn't have meat, so we used the, the skin of the platane, uh, you know. And I think this is really like a story of people that are resilient, uh, uh, they will they, they will never bow to to pressure and extortion from the powerful. This is is this fair? I don't think this is fair. I don't think it's fair to have to be resilient, to have to adapt in order to survive. So, like, where would Venezuela be right now if it wasn't for the sanctions? Uh, where, where would it be in terms of development? If, if it wasn't because of that, you know, sanctions hold countries back from development and Venezuelan people are being denied the right to development. And this is the, sto- the story that must be told. And at Code Pink, we do that. We educate, inspire and activate. And I think that it, our work is important because people are really learning and understanding the actions behind U.S. foreign policy towards Venezuela. For organizations like Code Pink and other allied groups, What's your current strategy to try to push for change to U.S. policy regarding sanctions, which we have to recognize, by and large, has bipartisan support? As we mentioned at the beginning, a lot of the maximum pressure strategy, those elements remain in place. So can you tell us what kind of work are you doing to confront that bipartisan consensus on U.S. imperialism? Yeah, well, you know, during the Vietnam War, war. You know, a lot of people said that all those protests they didn't really mean anything, that the youth and others, they were, you know, protesting and marching in Washington, and they were just wasting their time. And it turned out, uh, you know, with, with Watergate and, you know, and investigative journalism, that Nixon was really, like, horrified by this protest, and, and that the, the, these demonstrations really, like, Foiled Nixon's plans to to escalate the war, um, and this happened not only in the executive uh, but also legis- legislative branches of the government. So we we know that you know to march and rally and to send petitions and to lobby and to engage in civil disobedience, this can really make a difference. That is why we you know we we're trying to encourage through all of these you know. These tribunals uh, that you, you mentioned, uh, and uh, you know, petitions and forums, uh, visits to Congress. We're trying to reach out to the American people because once the American people are protesting in different forms on the streets, writing to Congress, once that happens, you know, the Washington politicians are going to take a second look look at their position and change their positions, and and we know. Uh, according to recent polls, that half, more than half of the U.S. citizens reject Washington's current uh, policy and sanctions. So the majority of the people now understand that sanctions only hurt the common people, people in Venezuela, children, women, the working class. 
but it's changes going it's going to happy happen only when people act and that is why you know we continue our fight uh, inside the belly of the beast you know from petitions to the Biden administrations to visit to congress to work with some members uh you know to pressure the Biden administrations on on some issues uh rallies protests delegations we're planning a delegation to Venezuela this summer to learn uh you know uh, from the experience uh, in within the commune system in Venezuela, and you know also webinars and actioners, videos, articles, radio shows, and you know this is what we're doing over here, and we believe in the power of the people. So yeah, and finally, also um, one of the one of the biggest uh, org- uh, organizations that we're, that we're making right now um, is. Our next, our next initiative, it's called. Um, it's going to be a forum uh, that I will really encourage you to be on the lookout for. Uh, Code Pink, along with many progressive groups in the U.S., we're organizing um, this forum at American University. This is going to be on on uh, April. It's a. It's called um, "In Search of a New U.S. Policy to or a New Latin America." burying 200 years of the Monroe Doctrine. And we are planning this because we know that there's an urgent need to develop a new U.S. policy that will improve our relations with our neighbors. And so, you know, we hope that this forum will be that space to discuss and analyze this. Um, So I just invite you to follow our work at codepink.org. Um, and, you know, on Twitter, uh, the Twitter handle is at Code Pink. And yeah, be on the lookout for that forum. You know, as an activist based in Latin America, I want to thank you and everybody at Code Pink for all of the work they've been doing and other allied organizations. It's incredibly important. We've been speaking with Michelle Elner, a Latin America campaign coordinator at Code Pink. And I just wanted to give you a chance here at the end to add anything else you think that we might have missed and you think is important for our listeners to hear. No, I just, I just think that. You know, the Venezuelan people are an example that is very close to my heart. I have family in Venezuela. And so I, I really I really know what, uh, you know, the Venezuelan people are capable of. Um, when I was making these interviews, uh, one one of the women from one of the um, one of the women that I that I was interviewing, she said that from hunger, they could see the Venezuelan people angry but not you know bent you know on their knees and that phrase really resonated and you know um made me understand that you know venezuelan people are so courageous and you definitely count on the people here in the u.s to to fight for a better u.s policy towards venezuela and all our neighbors in latin america so thank you so so much for inviting me Solidarity with the oppressed peoples of the world is not something that should ever be taken lightly. It is a serious commitment, and I am eternally grateful for those of you inside the belly of the beast resisting U.S. imperialism. The lifting of sanctions on Venezuela would undoubtedly represent a defeat of U.S. imperialist policy. The end of sanctions would not only mean relief for millions of Venezuelans, but also translates into a victory for the global working class including workers inside imperialist countries struggling for a dignified life for their families. The struggle against imperialism is a combined effort, 
As those of us in the global south struggle to build an alternative to capitalism, we need you in the north to weaken imperialism. As Che Guevara said in his message to the Tricontinental in 1967, quote, how close we could look into a bright future should two, three, or many Vietnams flourish throughout the world with their share of deaths and their immense tragedies, their everyday heroism, and their repeated blows against imperialism. Impelled to disperse its forces under the sudden attack and the increasing hatred of all the peoples of the world. And if we were capable of uniting to make our blows stronger and infallible, and so increase the effectiveness of all kinds of support given to the struggling people, how great and close would that future be? That's our program for today. Be sure to visit us at VenezuelaAnalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram, and of course, Twitter. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review if you can. It really helps us out. We'll end today's episode with the song, La Caída del Imperio. Escuche todo el planeta, el mensaje de mi letra, les ruego pongan cuidado. Si la historia es mentirosa, en todo el globo yo seré muy criticado. Ya es hora que abran los ojos, oigan la voz de un hermano nacido en el corazón del pueblo venezolano. Cayó la segunda guerra, mortandad, hambre y miseria, eso fue lo que causaron. Se erigió el imperio yanqui sobre las ruinas, no vacilaron. Albergue de terroristas, asesinos y malvados son una seria amenaza para el mundo en que habitamos. No debemos olvidar los caídos en Vietnam por capricho de estos bárbaros. Ellos auparon a Hitler y a Mussolini. Fíjense qué descalabro, después de tanto atropello, hoy pretenden engañarnos. Yo juro por mi existencia que jamás van a lograrlo. Hiroshima y Nagasaki, el año 45, fuertemente bombardeados. ¿Cuántos niñitos murieron? ¿Cuántas mujeres? ¿Cuántos ancianos? En la serviz de aquel siglo, por siempre quedó grabado. Hoy dicen ser defensores de los derechos humanos. En la patria de Bolívar, en abril de 2002, fue grave lo que causaron. Invirtieron muchos dólares, se derramó mucha sangre, esto fue un golpe de estado en complicidad total con un grupo de malandros, recibieron una pela del pueblo venezolano. integrarnos este es un llamado urgente sepan que al monstruo hay que frenarlo debe existir la igualdad entre los seres humanos evitemos que estos locos nos sigan haciendo daño donde hay matazón de gente están los gringos presentes siempre metiendo la mano aún llora el pueblo chileno porque a Salvador Allende sin piedad lo asesinaron ¿Dónde están las armas químicas que allá en Irak encontraron? Son argumentos ficticios, he aquí un pueblo masacrado. 
y qué hay de Jean Aristide Fue por órdenes de Washington que abandonó al pueblo haitiano Quitan y ponen gobiernos, es el coloso del norte que vive humillando a diario Por su mal comportamiento, hoy tienen los días contados A ese imperio compatriotas no lo salva ni un milagro Para bien del universo, se va a caer el imperio, no hay forma como evitarlo el orbe les puso el ojo por egoístas, por ser tan malos. El tiempo les pasó lista, ahí tienen el resultado. Claro está el refrán que dicta, no hay mal que dure 100 años. Cayó el imperio español, igual que el de Napoleón, el Azoka y el Romano. Tanto el Inca como el Maya eran grandotes, pero rodaron, juro, por Latinoamérica y por mi honor de soldado, que el próximo en derrumbarte es el norteamericano.